0: Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just spoke with Chi Liang He about his new book, Gilded Voices Economics, Politics, and Storytelling in the Yangtze Delta since 1949, and that came out with Brill Publishers just this year in 2012. Now, this is a really interesting book, um, and the stories that Chi Liang tells. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just spoke with Qi Liang He about his new book, Gilded Voices, Economics, Politics, and Storytelling in the Yangtze Delta since 1949, and that came out with Brill Publishers just this year in 2012. Now, this is a really interesting book, um, and the stories that Qi Liang tells about how he came to this project and the, the interviews especially that brought him to this book are equally fascinating. And so I'm going to keep this intro short and let you get right to the main event. But I will say that this is a book that's really interesting, not only for what it's arguing about the connection between uh, politics and the market, and how we understand um, cultural history of modern China, but also in its emphasis on the importance of taking genre and literary form seriously when we are evaluating the historical power and impact and significance of documents. And so I had a great time talking with him, and I hope you you'll enjoy. We're here today at New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Qiliang He about his recent book, Gilded Voices, Economics, Politics, and Storytelling in the Yangtze Delta since 1949. Now, one of the really interesting things about this book, and one of the reasons that I was really excited to read it um, as a historian of China, is that it's not just of interest to scholars of literary and performance studies, um, scholars of theater, but also gives historians. And historians, I think, uh, of all uh, periods um, of Chinese history and beyond, actually, a window into a really interesting form of performed history or performed historiography in modern China. So, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Chiyang, and thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Oh, it's uh, it's it's a pleasure.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure.
0: (laughs) So could you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to this field? What brought you to this particular field of Chinese history and also to this particular topic within that broader field?
1: Okay, very good. Actually, this is not a traditional first book for a young scholar. This is not based on my dissertation, but it it was derived from my dissertational uh, research. It was like four years ago, or I should say five years ago. It was in the summer of two thousand seven. I went to Shanghai to conduct uh, the research to expand my uh, dissertation about a famous elopement happening in nineteen twenty. Uh, 1929 uh, I interviewed a Pintan artist who continued to t- tell the story about the in- enlightenment from 50s all the way to the to- 2000s uh, he talked about not just how he performed the story, but also a lot of other things about the Pintan uh, storytellers, the communist officials, the censorship, and, and other things. So I was very interested in this, and I think it should be my second project after I revised my dissertation to be my first book. But things changed dramatically. Eventually, I had... A, Chances to interview other uh, Pintan storytellers. And I figured that the whole generation was getting old. Uh, uh, a lot of people I mentioned in my book, as you can see, actually passed away in the time span of five years between 2007 and now when I w- was working on the book. So I think it. I I. I it was a pressing task for me to to finish the book as soon as possible. So this was the major reason why I uh, started to work on the book in 2008 and 2009 and a few years later the book was published so I think it started as just some a byproduct of my dissertation but it ended up to be my first book and I think another factor behind my uh, working on this book was about uh, uh, the uh, conflicts of the uh, the, the artists and the state throughout the 60 years in the People's Republic of China. I think the, the theme was extremely interesting because I always assumed previously that the state always dominated the society, the artists and the audience all along. But as I interviewed all those artists, and their listeners, their fans, I figured that actually they had, the, 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 the audience, the artists, the performers had a lot of uh, initiatives and uh, they challenged uh, the authorities of the uh, political authorities. So this was the major reason I think I had uh, something very different to say. So I think uh, my book would become the first one to examine the market's role in mediating between the state and the artists in People's Republic of China, especially uh, before the 19th 70s. So this was the reason why I started the book as my first project instead of my dissertation. Thank you.
0: That's fascinating. And that's actually really interesting to hear about. And if you don't mind my asking, what was the topic of your dissertation and what part of that actually led you to this um, interview in the first place?
1: Okay. Uh, My dissertation uh, was about uh, two sensational cases in Shanghai in the 90s. The first one was a murder of a prostitute in 1920, and the second one was a sensational elopement between a a, a, a young lady from a wealthy family and her male servant in the late 1920s. Uh, Storytellers... It started to tell the story of the elopement as early as in the 1930s. In the 50s, as well as in the 1980s, 90s, and the 2000s, continued to uh, perform the story on stage. Uh, initially, I tried to revise the second half of my dissertation to be a book. I would like to examine how the same story was represented in different ways, in different periods of time in modern China to examine the urban culture and how urban culture uh, made the impact on policy making and the, and the, and the uh, uh, consumers I- personal identities so this was the the project I had in my mind before I came back to Shanghai to to conduct the interviews with the artists
0: ah great and then actually it sounds like that story of uh, the elopement is the basis for one of the Pingtan stories that you talk about in chapter six of this book I think.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah.
0: Okay. So wonderful. This is all really interesting to hear about. So for our, why don't we actually get right into the book? First, okay. First things first. For our listeners, um, who especially those of whom who may never have heard of Pingtan storytelling, let's start at the very beginning. So this is a book about Pingtan storytelling. Can you explain for our listeners what Pingtan storytelling is? Um, how do what what is that, and how would you define it?
1: Okay, yeah, Pintan Storytelling uh, uh, it was originated in the Yangtze Delta, to be more specific. Uh, it was uh, created in Suzhou a prosperous city ever since the imperial times in China. Uh, The storytellers used the the Suzhou dialect to tell the stories about uh, the wars, the politics, the romantic loves between scholars and the beauties, and uh, many other things. And uh, in, uh, in People's Republic of China, the storytellers were required to tell the stories about the Chinese revolution and the Communist Party, as we can all expect, uh, the Pintan storytelling was actually a genre of two subgenres. The first one was the was called the Tanzi. Actually, there there are a lot of scholars uh, in even in North America who are specialized in studying Tanzi in imperial times and in modern times. Tanzi were basically uh, a storytelling art. With musical uh, accompaniment, and there was another uh, subgenre which was Pinghua. Uh, Pinghua was a musicless uh, subgenre of Pingtan. Uh, well, in in. Pinghua performances, the storytellers just told the stories without uh, any music. So and uh, usually, Tans' stories were about uh, romantic loves, and uh, the, uh, Pinghua stories were about uh, the wars, kudetas, uh, and the uh, uh, night errands, martial arts, or something like this. So Tans' was a more masculine genre, subgenre, and uh, Pinghua. I was a more masculine uh, subgenre. Great. Oh. Um,
0: so the book uses the this example of Pingtan storytelling to reexamine uh, cultural reform in the People's Republic of China, and in doing so, you I think very effectively challenge some some widely held assumptions about that history in several ways. Now, one of the major assumptions um, I'd like that you challenge I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about, and this comes up right at the beginning of the book. Ultimately, the book argues that the role of the party or state has been overemphasized in this history, while that of the market has been largely overlooked in scholarship about this phenomenon, or, or scholarship rather on cultural reform, especially before the Cultural Revolution. So can you talk about this um this way that you're trying to change scholarship on cultural reform by emphasizing or at least recovering a space for the role of the market?
1: Okay, good question. Uh, For a long time, uh, we have the uh, assumption that uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, was very good at disciplining the whole society, including the artists and their uh, consumers. And uh, we also had the uh, assumption that uh, the Communist Party and the Communist regime uh, were specialized in disciplining and uh, collectivizing the artists, as a result, all the artists, including the performers, became a propagandists in a sense. They were required, they were forced to propagate the agenda, social and political agendas of the communist China. So this was the impression we have after uh, reading a lot of scholarly works uh, we have nowadays in North America, in China, and in many other places in the world. Uh, but uh, it, after I interviewed the, the artists, the especially the Pintan artists in China, I got I got a different uh, conclusion that actually the art, the state, was not that omni and omnipresent. There were a lot of hosts in the system. A large number of, especially Pintan artists, relied on the market to survive and thrive. Uh, The government was not able to patronize all the Pintan artists because of the lack of financial capability. The government might issue a lot of... uh, documents to urge all the uh, local governments to collectivize those artists. But in reality, it was unrealistic. It was economically unrealistic. Uh, as a result, uh, the, the artists, most of the Pintan artists, self-employed in the most part of the People's Republic of China. It, they, they were self-employed artists in the 50s and they were self-employed artists in the 80s, 90s and the, at the present. So very clearly uh, there, uh, there was a gap between the uh, political pronouncement and the, the reality in China. So this was the reason I would uh, uh, challenge some long-held the assumptions about the cultural reform in China, we always uh, pay a lot of attention to uh, what the political documents had to say, and uh, but we usually ignore what the real issue was in the Chinese society. And the Pintan storytelling gave us the, the window through which we can uh, better understand the uh, the Chinese society. Politics and the market, so this was my uh, intention when writing the book
0: mm-hmm. thank you and in, in fact the, it's, that was one of the really interesting and really surprising things in the book for me is how important um, you 're arguing that market forces were, and I think it 's a very refreshing perspective to bring to this kind of a case study. Now, another thing that the book tries to do, and you, you're very explicit about this in the introduction, is to argue for cont- a kind of continuity in the way we understand this period, and specifically for continuity between the Maoist and post-Maoist periods. You argue here that the Cultural Revolution was actually not a watershed in the history of Mingtan storytelling. So can you talk about, um, just briefly, the importance of this kind of recourse to continuity
1: and this argument about continuity for you? Okay, good question. Uh, Some scholars have discussed the continuity between the uh, Republican China and the the People's Republic of China. Basically, a lot of those scholars don't believe that uh, 1949 was not a watershed in the Chinese history. There, There were a lot of continuities. Uh, in a similar fashion, I would argue that uh, not, uh, the late 1970s was not uh, was not a watershed either. Uh, in terms of the cultural reform and the cultural management, we can see the continuities between Maoist China and the post-Maoist China. Let me give you an example. Uh, for Throughout the People's Republic of China, Culture was always a second tier thing. Economic development in different uh, forms has always been the the key issue for the government so in both periods of time maoist and the post maoist China, the government tried to uh, Apply the ways, the rules they got from economic uh, development or economic reform to the cultural realm. So, for example, I, as I have pointed in the third in the uh, third chapter, uh, the government tried to use the way of planned economy to the development of Pintang culture in the 50s and the 60s. In a similar vein, uh, in the 80s, the government once again tried to borrow the ways of uh, contract system. In Chinese, it was to to revitalize the Pingtang troops and artists. So in both cases, I would argue that uh, actually uh, the governments always always believed that uh, the culture was just uh, the afterthought behind uh, the economic development. So in this sense, I would say uh, they shared uh, certain measures and approaches uh, to deal with the cultural development and the reforms in China. So this was the reason I would, uh, I, I would argue that actually uh, post-Maoist China and, and Maoist China had a lot of similarities. Interestingly enough, my book actually didn't cover the – Cultural revolution, because it is my belief that uh, cultural revolution was an exception in in the Chinese history in the past 60 years. Uh, it Only in, during the cultural revolution that uh, could uh, the government uh, really dominate the society and, and the culture in China. Uh, And uh, another aspect about uh, the continuity between post-Mao and uh, Maoist and post-Maoist China was about uh, the flexible uh, approaches and the policies adopted by the uh, political authorities. Uh, In both times, the political authorities always took artists livelihood into consideration when they tried to push for some radical cultural reforms or changes in china so in both cases uh, the artists artists the artists livelihood would become a barrier of of cultural radicalism in uh, in, the, in the in the communist party so i would say this was the reason I, I argued that uh, we needed to pay some attention to the continuities between Maoist and post-Maoist post- China.
0: Thank you so much. Now, you've already, in the introduction, um, you mentioned a wide range of kinds of sources that you brought to this project. You've already talked a little bit about some of them and mentioning, um, in particular, the importance of interviews. Now, you've already talked about the ways that um, that shaped the direction that your story took in in ways that are very, very fascinating. Along those lines, um, sort of staying with the topic of interviews, were there any major surprises in the course of these interviews for you? Because I know that it was a major part of, of this project. You talk about them a lot in the book. It clearly shaped the direction that the, the book took. Or, so any major surprises, or were there any interviews individually that particularly stood out for you in the course of your research?
1: Uh, actually, the very first interview was already a surprise to me. The artist who told the story about the elopement in late 1920s cried. Hmm. I, was very stunned. I was very surprised. I didn't expect such emotions in, uh, in, 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 in an interview like this. Uh, he told me that he suffered a lot. Hmm in the 80s when he tried to uh, g- gain profits from telling the story in the beginning before I uh, went to his home I had the assumption that uh, the Chinese government in the 80s and the 90s must uh, support uh, the artists to, to tell or perform this kind of stories because it had a lot to do with the nostalgia for old Shanghai the the Capitalism and globalism in Shanghai in the 20s and the 30s. But I was totally unexpected that he actually had a lot of troubles in staging the story. He told me that his story was banned in Shanghai. Uh, the Shanghai bureaucrats consistently harassed him when he performed the story in, like Jiangsu and the Zhejiang, the, Yang, uh, the other parts of Yangtze Delta. Uh, so this was the major reason I eventually decided to write a book like this. I think it, it was it was interesting. It was a sad story, and it was interesting to uh, explore the life and the careers of the storytellers Mm -hmm. Uh, there were some other uh, surprising things in my uh, interviews of course for example uh, a storyteller who was purged in the late 50s uh, refused to, to receive my interview he was purged in the late 50s because of the incident I mentioned in in a chapter of my book, uh, he was sent. He was sent to the remote western province of Qinghai. Actually, he stayed there for almost twenty years. Wow. So he must have a very good story to tell about the conflicts and the revival of his career in late seventies. He was he was a very successful storytellers, a very successful self-employed storyteller throughout uh, uh, the history of People's Republic of China, but he just refused uh, to say anything to me. And uh, one more thing, those who a lot of storytellers who did uh, uh, conduct interview views with me actually might not tell the truth. I'm not, Suggesting that they are they were uh, lying in the interviews, but uh, they could find a better way to hide their intentions. So I needed I needed to be very careful when I analyzed uh, their 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 remarks. After I uh, started uh, after I started to uh, work on these uh, interview scripts. So the, this was another thing I, I would like to mention. Mm-hmm.
0: That's so interesting. the <clears throat> There are now like a million things that I want to ask you about the book, okay. but I won't do that because I'll move on because <laughs> yeah. there's so many other things um, that I want to ask you about the book. So one of the other kinds of sources, though, that I think um, I want to ask you about, and before we move into the chapters, is something that you mentioned being very important and very powerful at the beginning, and this was the importance of archival sources. Now you mentioned that some of the archival materials that you quoted in the book, in addition to being really central for how you understand the story, are no longer publicly available. So can you talk um, for our listeners about the archives you use and the ways that they shaped your project?
1: Uh, good. Archives are particularly impo- important to my project because it, 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 only the archive only with the assistance of the archives I can give a big and a complete picture about uh, the lives and the careers of those artists and uh, the world of Pintan art uh, as a whole uh, in according to the rule of Shanghai Municipal Archive, all uh, the the documents, the files of thirty years of age would be open to the government, uh, to the public, I should say. Uh, so that that means I now I can review the archives. Uh, in nineteen eighty-two and the, and the before, of course, those sensitive documents. Have all been hidden uh, by the by the Shanghai Municipal Archives? Those produced during the anti-rightist movement in 1957, and those produced during the Cultural Revolution between 1966 and 1976, were basically gone. So I I cannot uh, do any research about these things. So it it was a pity. Uh, I I was infuriated when I uh, searched for those archives. And this was another reason why I couldn't really write a chapter about the Cultural Revolution. Uh, Another thing was about the missing of some uh, opened archives. I used to see a a couple of documents about uh, the young Pingtang artists' protest in the 1960s, they tried to withdraw from the state-owned troops and they tried to establish their own Pingtang performing enterprises. This was a very interesting story. It Basically, this kind of information gives me the idea that uh, in the ni- in the 1960s, there were some resistance and the protests in Shanghai, but not just the Shanghai, but in many parts of China. Uh, but uh, because this specific uh, artist has become very famous nowadays, I don't know for what a reason and in what a way she was able to ask the Shanghai Municipal Archive to uh, to withdraw this file from the from the whole uh, package so so after a couple of years i i was able to find the document i think in 19 in, in 2007 but uh, in two thousand and ten I, I I was no longer able to to read it so this This was another thing I, I found very interesting about the archives. Uh, one more thing was about the uh, the instructions written by some uh, bureaucrats of communist party and, uh, and some instructions were written in a uh, haphazard way. I don't think the uh, the persons who made the instructions actually thought very carefully. They just they just write down what the, what the, what were in their mind. So these these information were very important because it shows that they were thinking something else, and. Uh, and as I have said in the book, uh, actually, when reading the archives, we can understand what uh, the Communist Party uh, officials initially thought about a certain issues, and uh, and then they changed their mind. So the the process of make of decision making was very uh, illuminating to to my book, and in. Other cases, the the uh, some texts were deleted from the archives, but we can still read them. So, so I think uh, if I work even harder. I may even uh, get some more interesting and inspiring conclusions by reading between the lines. This is the the, the thought I have regarding the archives.
0: Thank you so much. Now, as we move into the, the next chapter of the book, Okay. okay. The first chapter introduces readers many aspects of Pingtan storytelling, including the organization of the stories, the modes of performance, the types of spaces that the performances took place in, the type of types of skills employed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You introduce here some of the most important elements of a Ping uh, performance, and that includes, or those elements include humor, they include something called stuck-ins or... A-
1: hmm Yes. Oh,
0: yes, which is really interesting and becomes important later on to the story. Um, they include elaboration episodes and flexibility. Now, this actually brings us to a really interesting conceptual point that you make. So one of the things um, that you do in the book... Is that you're re-examining the assumption about the effectiveness of the Communist Party's censorship efforts in this period, right? And in yes. fact, like in fact, the history of censorship in the context of Pingtan actually plays a major role um, in many of the chapters of the books. So in this in, in this first chapter, you're arguing that the very structure and the very nature, the very form of Pingtan as a mode of performance, actually. Helps uh, helps make it censorship unfriendly. So you're actually arguing that one of the things that impacts this history of of censorship or uh, the kind of failure thereof in certain respects, um, it, interestingly, is the form itself of the genre. So can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Uh, actually, I have a strong belief that uh, the the form of a specific genre matters. In uh, so I. So when we talk about a specific uh, cultural form, such as the film, the uh, drama, or whatever, the novel, we need to understand what's the uniqueness of the specific form. So I'm studying Pintai storytelling. I'm not studying, say, Beijing opera or a Chinese novel or Chinese painting. So what's, uh, I need to ask myself, what was the uh, uniqueness? Unique to the time storytelling, and eventually I concluded that Pingtan was first of all a highly individualistic art. Uh, the time storytellers were able to garner high profit, high profits with two or three, even one uh, storytellers. Uh, so, uh, so they had the tendency to resist to the uh, collectivization effort by the state after 1949. Another thing about uh, the uh, the Pintan storytelling was the flexibility in performance. So in in most of the cases, the audience would expect that uh, uh, the storytellers could uh, tell something outside. Uh, the story because the storyteller the storytellers as well as the listeners were actually very familiar with the story te- stories especially those classic stories so they needed to get something new on a daily basis so this was required by the market so so for generations of storytellers they learned how to perform uh, in a very flexible way on stage. So if that was the case, I would argue that uh, the censors would have no chance to uh, listen to the, the real storytelling on the stage because as soon as the censors came, uh, the storytellers would automatically change their uh, contents and the form. Huh? so this is what makes this pingtan storytelling uh, censorship unfriendly uh and the pingtan storytelling had many interesting aspects such as the organization so 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 pingtan storytelling would become a, a a very useful case for me to uh, Battle the assumptions about uh, the the communist party's ability to collectivize the artists because most of the pinta storytellers remained self employed exactly because of the uh, characteristics of Pin organization so uh, this was the reason I, I explained uh, some uh, characteristics of Pingtang storytelling in the very first chapter but I'm not, I was not just uh, talking about uh, what Pingtang was in the first chapter I talked about uh, uh, Pingtang's organizations, Pingtang's modes of uh, performance, Pingtang's uh, training and lack of texts because all these things had a strong political implications and uh, they were the uh, Contribute to tan artists resist to uh, the status uh, supervision and the intervention in the in the past sixty years. So this was the reason I uh, detailed the Pingtan. Mm-hmm. In the, in the first chapter.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Now, we talked a little bit about state censorship, and the next chapter uh-huh. actually gets us, um, sort of complicates the story by raising the issue of um, what might be called self-censorship. So this yes. chapter, hey okay, so in the context of this chapter, it's now the early 1950s, and communist cadres are pushing for a sweeping reform of Pingtan storytelling in order to fit the broader <laughs> CCP agenda. Now, this chapter explores one result of this, which is called or which you translate as cutting the tail of movement by performers, that has been described as a kind of self-censorship. Can you describe that for our, um, talk about that a little bit for our listeners?
1: Yeah, uh, the first chapter was set in the three years immediately after the uh, CCP takeover of China. So this was a crucial time for all Tan storytellers because they needed to make a decision about how to deal with the new historical uh, times. They, some of them would uh, be willing uh, to join the uh, enterprise, performing enterprises Organized by the CCP, and some of them would choose to be uh, the self-employed storytellers, just like before. But uh, one thing was very confusing uh, in the first uh, several years of the People's Republic of China was the was to what extent the new regime would uh, tolerate the. Uh, the the classic stories according to a lot of radical leftists in ccp the classic stories were filled with feudal ideologies such as polygamy such as the loyalty to the emperors so everyone was confused not just the storytellers but also the government bureaucrats the CCP officials. So in this confusing times, storytellers tried uh, to survive the regime change by censoring themselves. They cut the tail of feudalism. So I translate it as cutting the tail. Uh, it, actually, this was in Chinese. Uh, but uh, it's didn't work, to be honest. Uh, What I tried to point out in the first chapter was, first of all, even though until today, a lot of Pintan historians in China continue to uh, boast that uh, the cutting the tail movement was very successful because virtually all the Pingtang storytellers quit their classic classic stories and started to tell the new stories. But this was not true, as I have said in the book. (laughs) Actually, a lot of storytellers secretly or openly resisted to the movement of cutting the tail. They continued to tell the classic stories. Some of them initially... Agreed to quit to the classic stories, but eventually they uh, resumed telling the classic stories. So, my point was the cutting, the, the movement of cutting the tail never really prevailed in China, in Yangtze Delta, because there were still a lot of storytellers who continued to tell the classic stories. And the second, movement of cutting the tail was actually supported by the government and the, uh, uh, the gov- governmental coercion was very very clear in the process uh, the, the cadres actually secretly punished the, the artists who continued to tell the stories the classic stories and uh, the cadre sometimes criticized the, the journals, the magazines, who, who didn't approve of the staging the, uh, of the news stories. And the third, the, uh, the movement of cutting the tail ended in 1952. Actually... It it gives us some idea about uh, the market, market, uh, the market's role in the process. The the artists simply couldn't survive Mm -hmm. by only telling the new stories. They had to uh, make money by telling the classic stories. The audience just uh, didn't buy. Uh, So from this, we can just. and that the government, even though the government tried to push for a total reform, total change in PinTAN storytelling, it it that it that just didn't work out. Uh, the 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 storytellers would starve if they continued to tell the the new stories, and quit the classic stories. So. Uh, so the government had to take the storyteller's livelihood into consideration this time. So this was the reason why the movement of cutting the tail ended uh, very quickly after it was implemented in 1951. Just, uh, uh, just one year, I would say. But... Um, at, at any rate, my point was this movement was never really completely carried out. It, it was initiated, yes, by some uh, progressive storytellers, but in the end of the day, it was the storytellers who succeeded in resisting to the movement, they initiated themselves. So, from this, we I can and I can I can point out that uh, uh, the radical cultural movement in early People's Republic of China was not that successful as the historians in China choose to believe.
0: Great. Now, even given that, one of the really interesting things that you go on to show in the course of the book, and this is both in the next chapter and also throughout the other chapters, is that there were actually quite substantial or significant transformations or sort of evolutions of Peng Tan as a genre over the course of this history. So very late in the book... um, <clears throat> excuse me, in one of the last chapters, you mentioned, for example, um, the, the the kind of transformations that emerge from the availability of ping-tan storytelling uh, on television and the fact that you actually were able to experience in your own research some of these stories through the internet. Now, one of the uh, transformations early on in this genre is something that you describe in the next chapter here that comes directly from some of the implications of of chapter two. And this is the development of a new genre of... Pingtan stories that were called middle-length Pingtan stories. Now, because this seems so, the development of this new genre of Pingtan seems actually really important, not just for this chapter, but for actually setting the stage for what's going to happen later. Can you talk a little bit about um, this new genre? I think it's a three-hour long stories. And why why is that important and why was that so central to what happened in the story of Pingtan?
1: yeah uh, middle East pin stories were extremely important especially for the uh uh c c p officials because I mean, initially it was created uh, in order to uh, promote uh, the social and the political agendas of the communist party but it was it, it turned out to be a major uh amusement for the City residents in Shanghai and in many other big cities in the Yangtze Delta. So the uh, the thrust of the argument in chapter three was that uh, the politicized culture sometimes would become entertainment. So the uh, so I I I initially I tried to use I tried to invent a term enter, entertainizing. Politics to indi- indi- indicating the process. Uh, this, sto- this genre, the middle-length story, the middle pintan story, was created in early 1950s. Uh, the, uh, initially, mm. the storytellers co- cooperated with the government tried to, try to uh, complete a story within three hours. So, uh, so in if that's the case, Pin storytelling would be very similar to drama and the films in terms of the length. Uh, and the storytellers didn't expect the success of the genre because uh, they still felt that the the full length stories would be the uh, may, the mainstream genre. In- Pinel storytelling. but unexpected that inex- in unexpectedly, uh, ch- uh, listeners in the young delta welcomed uh, the middle length stories because because of the change of uh, working rhythms in the cities, uh, and uh, because of the length, a lot of a lot of previously. Uh, non-fans such as students and the workers would become the tang listeners because previously they didn't have time to uh, enjoy Pingtang on a daily basis. They could not afford to go to theaters or tea houses to listen to Pingtang storytellers every night. But uh, it, when the middle-length tang stories were performed, they would have the chance to go to theaters. I, I use the term story house, of course, in my book. Uh, once a week, for example. So in this sense, the creation of a new genre, uh, rebuilt the Pingtan storytelling as a mass entertainment in Shanghai and in other big cities in the Yangtze Delta. So this was the the, uh, the major point I would like to make in my chapter. But another thing about the chapter was that, uh, even though the uh, CCP officials tried to infuse uh, revolutions and other uh, ideologies into the stories, but the audience enjoyed the middleland stories as entertainment, not as political uh, indoctrination so from this I argue that uh, even the political culture, even the propaganda would be taken as uh, entertainment in the 1950s and the 60s. In essence, propaganda and entertainment shared something in common. That means both propaganda and entertainment should Capture the audience. So this was the reason I would say, uh, pin uh, middle-length pingtan stories were extremely uh, successful as a new genre, new sub of pingtan storytelling. Uh, even though by nature it started as a political culture, but eventually the audience received the stories for different reasons and purposes, and they were taken as pure entertainment for a lot of listeners. In, uh, in, uh, on, on the contrary, uh, on the other side of the story, I would argue that because of the creation of the Middle East Pintan stories, the government officials were very satisfied with the new creation because they could use this uh, new genre to compete with self-employed uh, storytellers in the market, which uh, resulted in some conflicts, of course, we can see from this next chapter. So... Uh, by studying the middle-length Pintan stories, I would I would say uh, the governments, the cadres, the uh, CCP officials were good at, were good at good at uh, creating new markets uh, to both uh, garner profits and uh, promote communist ideologies. So this is the dual. Dual rows of middle-length pintan story stories in the 50s and the 60s.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Now, in the interest of time, what I'm going to do is um, I'll just sort of briefly mention some of the things that you do in some of the chapters along the way and then sort of bring us to the last part of the book, um, which also is, is a very interesting continuation of this set of arguments that you're giving us that really really seem to prioritize or ask us to prioritize the form of a, of a genre, the form of either a literary or or performative genre and looking at the historical implications that emerge from that form. So, in that you've already mentioned this conflict in the next chapter. Um, be, that ar- arose between state employed and self employed Pingtan storytellers. And you describe the implications of this and the effects of this on the communities of Pingtan storytellers. Then you take us through um, the period after the Great Leap Forward, which was completely disastrous, as, as many listeners will know. But after, as the economy revived and cultural control sort of loosened, what that cultural thaw meant for Pingtan storytellers and the ways that that um, affected the kinds of troops that grew up out of that and the kinds of people who were actually engaged in these performances and the sort of forms of resistance that they were able to um, enact using these new troops and, and this new sort of cultural thought as a, as a platform you then move us into the reform era, right? Um, and let look, yes. look at the, the new emerging market that arises, especially in the context of um, these this formation of five collectively-owned troops in Shanghai and the way that sort of what happens after they lose their professional status. And the Cultural Revolution basically deals a, a really crushing blow to this as a profession. And in that chapter, or in Chapter 6, listeners will remember that you mentioned actually early on, um, what brought you into this book project in the first place, which was an interview with one of the authors about this um, Ping Tan story about an elopement. Okay, so you mentioned um, two self-employed performers in this chapter, and then um, I'll sort of bring us into the later chapters after I ask you about this, but one of these performers um, that you mentioned, um, his name was Yang Zijiang.
1: Yes, okay. Yangtze River basically right. <laughs> yeah. right, right Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: Now this storyteller is really, really interesting Because as you tell us he was the fir- This brings us into issues of intellectual property And authorship Because this is apparently yeah, yeah. the first pingtan storyteller Who actually used the le- legal system To defend intellectual property rights So because that's that's potentially Of really wide interest To a lot of different kinds of people Who might be interested in this book Can you talk about that a little bit for us?
1: Yeah, Yang Zhang has always been a unique uh, uh storyteller because first of all he didn't uh, receive any uh training as a storyteller. He was from a wealthy family uh w- which had uh, a lot of relationships with uh, the Kuomintang nationalist uh, bureaucrats before 1949. Because of this uh, he lost uh, everything. He his parents were arrested by the communist authorities after 1949. He lost his job, his properties, everything. So he had to embark on a storytelling career to survive in the 50s. Uh, he was, he didn't receive the trainings. So he couldn't sing, so he could only uh, tell the Pinghua stories without music, without musical accompaniment. But he was a very different person essentially because he had received a high education. He was a university graduate in Shanghai in the 40s. So he had the ability to write the stories better than anybody else in the world of Pintan. Most of the Pintan stories, by the way, especially those in the older generations, were illiterate. They couldn't write by themselves so yang zhang could write so uh, in the 80s he, he was banned from the world of pin for 10 years in the time span of one decade he developed uh, four stories uh, uh, and and uh, actually he in his lifetime he wrote uh, many more than just four uh, one of the stories was very popular it was about uh, the Kangxi Emperor in the Qin Dynasty this story was extremely popular uh, so that uh, some, uh, are, some Pintan storytellers especially the young Pintan storytellers in the Suzhou Pintan troupe, came to learn the story from Yang zijiang and they earned the fame and the fortune because of the story in the late 1990s yang zhang learned that these people these artists became nationwide uh, pingtan, nationwide popular pingtan storyteller they earned their fames because of the story he wrote, so he was very angry about that. I don't know if they actually negotiated with each other in the nineties before uh, Yang Zhang brought the lawsuit on the court. Uh, and the many storytellers in the late nineteen in the nineteen nineties did. I didn't believe that Yang Zijiang would win the lawsuit. To be honest, because Yang Zijiang always, uh, was always punished by the political authorities in the fifties, in the sixties, in the seventies, and the eighties. But at this time, uh, it, China was entering into a new age. China was about to join the WTA, so inter- intellectual properties became a very sensitive issue nationwide, and uh, and uh, the court ruled that uh, the the Suzhou Pingtan troop had to uh, discuss with Yang Zijiang, negotiate with Yang Zijiang in order to. To work out a deal, eventually Yang Zijiang got uh, some compensations uh, from the Suzhou Pintan troop. Uh, I interviewed Yang Zijiang personally before he died. This was uh, this was really a shock to me actually. Uh, he 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 was very proud of that eventually he could win something from the state according to himself. Uh, but uh, this was a very uh, unique thing in the world of Pingtan because for hundreds of years, disciples learned uh, stories from their masters. Uh, and before the... masters adopted those disciples, the disciples' family would pay a sum of money, usually like 100 uh, uh, silver dollars or or 200 silver dollars, something like this. So if the fees have been paid, that means the disciples would automatically get uh, the rights to tell the stories developed by their own masters. But uh, in this case, Yang Jiang actually challenged uh, this century-long practice in the Pintan storytelling, and uh, uh, the the Suzhou Pintan troupe was very unhappy with this. Is exactly because of uh, the, the, this reason. If this practice was uh, was vetoed by the league authorities, it, it would be impossible for the masters to pass down their stories to their disciples in, in, in the in the future. So uh, so Yang Zijian was sometimes regarded as a black sheep in the in the, in the in the in the world of Pintan storytelling because of this. But the, but the, you can understand. The, uh, the the most interesting part of the story was the new. New environment, new legal and economic environment in the late 1990s in China, which enabled Yang Zijiang to win the lawsuit against the, the Suzhou Pintan troop. So that, that was the interesting part.
0: Thank you so much. Now, in order to, um, I don't want to keep you for too long. So, before we we wrap up, there's just one more thing um, that I'd like to ask you. And what I'll do is I'll mention for listeners after this chapter. The final body chapter before the epilogue looks at the rise of Pingtan stories about the political histories of the PRC and the CCP since the late 1990s. And so this brings us into very kind of modern context. So, speci- one of the things that happens um, is that specifically we see a transformation in the spaces of Pingtan and sort of Pingtan story houses into public spaces for socialization of retirees and for the elderly. And so, there's a really interesting component to this story which is about the kind of history of social management of the elderly and retired, um, and which is really, really interesting and I think surprising in this chapter. But the thing that I want to ask you about very briefly before we we wrap up is another element of the story that I think actually very interestingly bears on historiography and very surprisingly. So you argue here... That the stories of um, one of the artists, Li Gong, okay, like mm-hmm. the stories of Yang Tejing, who you just um, were talking about, they actually counter- yeah. so they counteracted state efforts to as you say, obliterate, right, unapproved memories, so unapproved memories of the kind of nasty bits of PRC history from listeners lived experience, and so you're arguing here that these performances actually functioned as a form of history making for the audiences, they functioned as a form of collective memory. Um, and this is actually really interesting from the perspective of just the way we think about the formation of historical records. And so I'd love, before we um, wrap up here, if you could say a little bit um, about that and that aspect of what's happening here.
1: Yeah, the last part, the last part of the book was about the uh, reconstruction, of, uh, history of people's republic of China and the CCP uh, in the stories. So I, I was I was basically talking about two things. First, uh, it was about uh, the aging society in China and uh, the government uh, faced a, a real challenge about uh, how to deal with the aging society in China, how to um, manage, how to pacify these retirees. The, uh, another, the second one was about uh, how these uh, retirees receive the the Pintan stories uh, in their day-to-day life i think painting was important for the retirees in the Young's delta essentially because it gives them the chance to uh, to go to a story house on a daily basis uh, so they could stay with the same group of listeners every day so as a, a kind of Uh, public group came into being because of this Uh, when they were in the story houses they enjoyed uh, the so called uh, political stories the stories about uh, the PRC and the CCP's history Uh, and uh, in the meantime I argue that uh, in the past 60 years a lot of a lot of historical events were erased from the uh, Chinese historiography, the the government sponsored the historians were reluctant to, to talk about things like the Cultural Revolution as well as the Tiananmen Massacre. But uh, interestingly enough, all these events found uh, uh, mentioned in in the stories uh, in by Li Gang, Yang Zijiang, and many other uh, storytellers. So, uh, these storytellers helped these uh, elder uh, storytellers uh, to reconstruct their memories, to remind what was going on when they were young. And these uh, these retirees, these older listeners, um, had been Red Guards or the people who were purged. Uh, by the uh, Communist Party or as uh, uh, the Center down youth. So so the storytellers played a very significant role to uh, help them refresh their memories. But in the meantime the storyteller reminded that they were not the, they were not the only the victims or the actors of the 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 past they were just the, the good people who lived through the past. they just they were just like the commoners in the classic stories who survived the wars, the natural disasters, the good does among the uh, emperors and the bureaucrats in, the, in classic stories. So the, in this sense, uh, the political Pintan stories uh, play, played a very important role to, to assure these older uh, li- the listeners of personal identities as a people who lived through the past six. Decades. So this was the point I would like to to make.
0: Thank you so much. Now, Chi Liang, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you so much for being with us today. Now, there's a lot in the book um, that, it's a very rich book, and there's a lot that we didn't have a chance to talk about in our hour today. Is there anything in particular that we didn't cover, but that you'd like to point out for our listeners, especially those who may not yet have had the chance to read
1: the book? Uh, one thing I would like to point out uh, is that I always think uh, a genre matters. This was the reason why I put uh, the uh, the chapter one t- to function as a introductory of uh, the uh, introductory chapter of Pingtan storytelling. I, I think, uh, uh Pingtan storytellers were put particularly good at uh, resisting the state intervention and uh, supervision because of the genre. They were trained to be elusive sometimes. Uh, so this was the uh, the reason why uh, it's a big, it's, a, it's, it's, it's Extremely interesting and illuminating to study the Pintan storytelling and its relationship with the politics and the market. Uh, and I another thing is that I sometimes later I may want to write a, a, another book about Pintai storytelling during the Cultural Revolution, but it's it's going to be hard. But I think it's good, It's going to be a good complement to, to this one.
0: Wonderful. And so now that this book is out, what's next for you? What can we um, look forward to reading next, or or at least what project is particularly inspiring you at the moment?
1: Uh, I need to go back to my dissertation. <laughs> right. Definitely. So I'm going. I'm actually writing a second book. <laughs> the title might be uh, "The Love Between Huang and Lu," women's agent. See consumer culture and the conservatism in 1920s China. So, as I have said, the, the the book centers on the elopement in 19 in the late 1920s. Uh, the young woman whose last name was Huang eloped with her sweetheart, her servant, from Shanghai to Suzhou, and it was a national sensation. uh, journalists from Shanghai and Suzhou, but not just limited to these two places. The journalists from like Hangzhou, from Beijing, and many other places all covered uh, the case in great detail. The the, uh, dramatists played uh, the elopement on the stage. The novelists wrote a, a number of novels based on the elopement. Uh, there were three, at the least three films made uh, for the story. So there were a lot of uh, going on because of the sensational element in in the late 1920s and the early 1930s. So by using this, by using this case, I would like to argue that uh, all these entertainers, filmmakers, journalists, novelists collectively denied the subjectivity of Chinese women in this period of time. Uh, They all all called for the the woman's return to home. So they prioritized the family value over uh, women's independent will uh, in this case. So, the, uh, so by doing this, I would argue that uh, the nationalist uh, conservatism in the 1930s was built on a social consensus to uh, revive or restore the traditional morals such as family value. Uh, in in the book, I will I will. Piece together several diff sef, several different aspects of uh, history historical re, uh, research. I will uh, put together such as legal history, uh, women's studies, uh, media studies, and the journalist history, and some. Th- like this into one book by focusing on this this case, so I think uh i i i'm I'm in good shape of completing this book pretty soon because I have written several chapters and uh, essentially because it was it was part of my dissertation so that's that that will be my second project
0: well that sounds great too and so Good luck with that research, and thank you so much again for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.